Hi everyone, I'm Stephen Stout, Executive Director with the Texas Society of Association Executives, and welcome to the second season of Better by Association, an original podcast produced by TSAE. And I'm Katie Marker, Marketing and Communications Director with TSAE. And Stephen, you just said the second season. We are on number two. We came back, no one asked us to leave and stop doing this. And so we have get to continue on with our little journey this year. And it's great to be back here with you again, Katie, this season. And we have some awesome guests lined up for our listeners for season two already. So I'm super excited. I am too. I think it's going to be really awesome. I'm glad to get started again. It seems like a while since we recorded that last episode. Yeah, it really does. We had the holiday season hit right after that. And that is always just a really well, lovely time with your friends and family, but also a weird time of not knowing like what day it is, what time it is, what's the meaning of life. I just feel like you get this like weird, I don't know, what day is it now? Is it a Monday? Is it a Friday? We're glad to be back. And uh, I hope everyone had a lovely holiday season with their loved ones, including you, Katie. Yes, I really did. It was a really nice holiday with my family. So thank you, Stephen. I was ready for some structure again, too. Just being all over the place, not knowing again, like you said, what day it is. It's fun for a minute, but I'm ready to get back. So <laughs> we're here. We're starting season two with a big hitter. Today, we'll be chatting with Jonathan Blum, an attorney in the law offices of Holland and Knight, specializing in nonprofit and tax-exempt law. I'm really excited about this guest. I have a thousand questions for a guest. So We'll see how many we can get through. I feel like we need that gavel noise from Law & Order every time Jonathan makes a point today. Like, or working, you can't handle the truth or objection. <laughs> but I also wanted to feel comfortable so we're not going to harass him. Well, I'm sure he hasn't heard any of that before. <laughs> yeah, I'm the first one to make a legal joke to Jonathan. I'm, I'm 100%. <laughs> so let me introduce Jonathan. Prior to his return to private practice, Jonathan served as the executive director and general counsel for the Morton H. Meyerson Family Foundation. Jonathan oversaw the administration, legal, and tax compliance of the MFF. Prior to joining the MFF, was the general counsel of the Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation, the world's largest grassroots network of breast cancer survivors and activists working to end breast cancer forever. That's awesome. Jonathan has also served as an adjunct professor of law at the SMU Dedman School of Law, he also served as the chair of the Dallas Regional Chambers Leadership Dallas Alumni. The Dallas Business Journal named Jonathan as a rising star in its 2009 Corporate Council Awards. In 2004, Jonathan was named Pro Bono Attorney of the Year by the Dallas Volunteer Attorney Program, a joint program with the Dallas Bar Association and Legal Aid of Northwest Texas. Jonathan graduated with honors from the University of Texas School of Law in 2000. He also earned a bachelor's with special honors from the University of Texas with a double major in both government and plan two, and a minor in Spanish. Jonathan is clearly a well-versed Texan, so we're excited to have him here. Please welcome Jonathan Blum to the show. Welcome, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. Great to be here. Happy to participate in this podcast. Yeah, we're really excited to have you. When we were kicking around who to kick off with, we're like, who better than an attorney to really get us all jazzed up for 2024. <laughs> well, we should start with some lawyer jokes then. Already ahead of you, my friend, in the intro. So we're already there. Now, Jonathan, we do start off every podcast with the same question for all every one of our guests, and you're no different. So we'd love to hear what is your fallen story? Like, how did you fall into the industry or especially with your career? How did you specialize in this space? Because there aren't a lot of nonprofit specialization attorneys that I know of, especially in Texas. So I'm curious how you fell into this area. Yeah, it was a unique story. If I had known graduating from law school that this was an option, I would have started here from the very beginning of my practice. 
but it didn't start out that way. When I was in law school, I was trying to decide what kind of lawyer I wanted to be. And like you said, it's the common images are you can't handle the truth. It's the typical courtroom lawyer. And I just didn't find that as something I wanted to do. It wasn't something that I was interested in. And so I volunteered for a federal judge because oh. I thought I would be super interested in that. And it just wasn't for me. I didn't enjoy it. And so it was a career switch in the middle. I had the opportunity to work at a law firm over the summer in in my law school practice. And I was trying to decide between litigation and transactional practice, because that's usually the big choice. And I didn't want to be in a situation where I was fighting with people all day, every day as my day job. (laughs) And it just didn't suit my personality. It wasn't who I wanted to be. And so transactional work was a real attraction. It was you negotiate with someone to reach a successful conclusion that everyone walks away, building something new, acquiring company, merging. And that seemed to be attractive to me. And so I started my practice really as a mergers and acquisitions attorney and did that for about seven or eight years and just decided that it wasn't enough. There was something missing. And all along the road, I had been doing other things outside. I was volunteering with nonprofits. I was doing pro bono work. As you mentioned, I got an award for doing pro bono work because it was the way that I was filling in the gaps that wasn't fulfilling my professional aspirations. And there was a moment in my career when my wife was actually pregnant with twins. And I said, this is a pivot point in my life. I want to figure out where my next step is. And so I shifted to a job where I could better manage my schedule. And it also was an opportunity to move into the charitable space. So I worked for Susan G. Komen Breast Cancer Foundation as an in-house lawyer. I was there about five years doing all sorts of in-house legal work for a very large charity. And that nonprofit practice was really compelling, interesting. I enjoyed the opportunity to really help those who are doing the frontline work of really helping people. And there was something really good about that. And I may not have been the best person to be on the front line doing all the helping, but I was using my skills to help them do their things better. And there was a lot to get out of that that I enjoy. That's really great. What a good story. I know. And you you started with a big charity. You didn't start small time. Like everyone knows Susan Coleman Foundation. Wow, that's incredible. It really is. It reminds me so much of a previous interview we had with Leslie Midgley, where she talks about how this business gets in your blood. And I feel like that just really resonates in your story. So I'm glad it did. Just Leo nipped by the bug. (laughs) Yeah, I I definitely did. And it it was one of those things. I kept trying to find ways to stay in the sector, stay in the space, stay connected. And it does have links to association works. Komen at the time was a federated model where they had affiliates all across the country. They had 122 affiliates. So we were providing that resource for all the different affiliates across the country. And it led me down this path that we'll get to at the end, right? So after I left Komen, I went to work for a a family office where I was doing the legal work for the family office as well as the family foundation. And it was great seeing that family philanthropy really making an impact in different ways and really understanding how donors see the world. And I was there for about three years. And after I left there, I, I had another pivot point, right? It was a moment where I could really decide what is it that I want out of my future career? Where do I want to be? What do I want to do? I wanted to stay in Texas. I wanted to work with charities and nonprofits. And I figured the best way to do that really was to join a law firm, go back into private practice 
That way I could work with the whole sector and various different organizations. And so I went back to a law firm. I've been doing the private practice for the last 10 years, working exclusively with charities, foundations, trade associations, advocacy groups, social clubs. And it's been a fantastic practice. That's great. Awesome. It is. Super impressive. So let's dive into it. Let's get to the good stuff. (laughs) Get to the law and order session portion of our conversation. All right. Definitely. (laughs) So tell us, what are the most recent legal trends you're seeing for associations right now, and maybe in particular since the pandemic? Yeah, the trade associations have really been at the forefront of a lot of legal advances lately, and not because they want to be. I think trade associations have seen, they saw the front end of the pandemic, and they're the ones coming out of the pandemic. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that you have long-term contracts, you are looking at conventions years out, you're booking events. All of those things were severely impacted by the pandemic. Yeah. The first phone calls I got in March of 2020 was from associations who were dealing with the consequences of government regulations that were impacting their ability to host events, the numerous cancellations that were imposed, the lockdowns, all of those things impacted their day-to-day operations. And so trade associations really were the first ones to have the full impact of what the pandemic was doing and how it had affected them from a legal perspective. Yeah. We learned the term force majeure. How many people oh, God. I hate that term, Jonathan, by the way. <laughs> I'm talking about it. And then, but never, now, since the pandemic, I know a lot about force majeure. But yeah, least favorite term I've, I've ever heard. Yeah, so Latin terminology, where basically it's an act of God that, that gets in the way of things. And I think trade associations were the first to really deal with the consequences of how a legal contract deals with something that nobody anticipated. And the problem was we didn't really understand what was happening at the time. But in hindsight, we can look back and say, if that wasn't one of those force majeure events that impact that little clause at the back of a contract that pays attention to it. I don't know what was, and nobody anticipated this on either side. Every trade association wanted to go forward and have their event, and every hotel wanted, every convention center wanted you to be there, but we couldn't. And so that was a perfect example. And unfortunately, there wasn't a lot that really got resolved. What I saw most often was that trade associations that were successful dealing with this had a close relationship with the hotels that they were working with. It was based on relationships. It wasn't about getting lawyers involved. It wasn't about litigation. Everyone just figured out that, hey, we really want to keep doing this. Maybe we just push it out a year. Maybe we can have some give and take here so that we can maintain our relationship because we all really want to work together. We're not able to. Yeah, that's such a good point. I, I remember that feeling, Jonathan, when we have the same situation or as a professional society, you know, we had commitments and we had plans to go forward with meetings and things. And because uh, of who we are, our meetings also affect our hosts, meaning they get to show off a little bit to their, our customers. So they have an opportunity and so they miss the opportunity. And it was just heartbreaking on either side, like making that call and saying, well, we want to come, but we can't and our people can't. But you're right. The only thing that saved us during that whole time was our great relationships with our partners. Otherwise, I think we would have been up the creek. So we're very fortunate. We're a living embodiment of what you just talked about. And I think that's the right answer. There is certainly a role for lawyers. There's certainly a role for litigation. It's all about dispute resolution. 
we don't go out in the streets with guns and have duels like in the good old days. What yeah. we do, we go to the court system to resolve our disputes. But I think with nonprofits, nobody likes being in a lawsuit with a nonprofit and nobody likes suing a nonprofit. Sure. And so we have the opportunity to really leverage our relationships and work out other means of addressing those opportunities for conflict. And hopefully that works. Sometimes it doesn't. But I think what we saw generally is the most successful outcomes were based on those really strong relationships. Agreed. And I've heard that from several people. That's what saved them as well is the relationship they had with their hoteliers and their salespeople for years. One of the things that's great about an association is that I feel like you said, it is very relationship-based. The planners and the salespeople from the cities and then the hotels, you really saw everyone come together to work through this. Because like you said, we're all kind of building the planes. We were flying it because we had no one had ever been through a global pandemic before. I think the last one was the Spanish flu back in the 1920s or whatever. I always think it was really funny because people would call us, which I appreciate the vote of confidence, but people are like, what should we be doing? And I'm like, I don't know. I have no clue. We've never been through a pandemic either. We'll look into it and we'll try and figure it out, but we're all going to be on this together because we don't have the answers. I don't know anyone that did for a really long time. So it was a challenging time for everybody. And I think the other things that have come out of the pandemic, and this is true across the nonprofit sector. Those organizations that were strong going into the pandemic, whether they were able to take PPP funds or other types of government assistance or not, those that were strong before the pandemic came out of the pandemic strong. Those that were weak before the pandemic continue to be weak and are facing headwinds like increased cost, increased challenges. And so I'm seeing cracks in those organizations that were already fragile before the pandemic. And so now we're seeing opportunities for mergers. We're looking at organizations that are shutting down because they just aren't able to to compete on a national scale anymore. We're looking at organizations that are spinning off some of their assets, like their annual conference or like some of the educational materials they're doing. So all of these transactional related issues are really interesting in terms of it's something the for-profit world does often. I think the nonprofit world does less frequently. And so you really want to understand the implications. There are structuring issues. There are tax implications. There are other areas of concern that you just want to be familiar with if you're embarking on those. But those are some of the trends that I'm seeing. That's pretty incredible. One of the things we've talked about a lot with groups is that we're hearing about, especially the point you brought up about mergers and acquisitions, a lot of folks are trying to find ways to keep their annual convention viable as far as like financially but it's always a, a coveted event that usually the members love and they love the way all the food and the the fun that people have at annual convention. But as we all know here, that all that stuff has a price tag and has significantly gone up since 2020. So everyone's trying to figure out how do I provide the same experience for our people, but also make money on the event again. And so I've talked to a lot of groups who are talking with other groups about can we merge our event with another group's event that's maybe in the same space? Or So it's interesting you brought it up because I'm hearing a lot of conversation about mergers as far as the, on that avenue as well. And I'm also seeing joint ventures. I'm seeing for-profit management companies trying to get in the space. And that creates interesting and unique complications. Hopefully, organizations are just paying attention to those kinds of issues. That's a great lead into my next question for you, Jonathan. What are some legal areas you wish, like this is your opinion, more associations would pay attention to and why? I think that's a great question. The organizations that are really forward thinking are usually coming up with various opportunities. I know one of your podcasts was all about innovation. I love the innovation topic. I love areas where 
organizations are trying to find ways to be more useful for their members. And part of that, I just want to emphasize that you're a tax-exempt organization and the tax-exempt status is a privilege and the IRS has guidelines and restrictions on kinds of things you can do and how you can do it in efficient ways that comply with your tax-exempt status. And I think some organizations may not recognize where some of the pitfalls are, and that can be hard. I think another area that is critically important is just good board governance. You know, when you're looking at risk management issues, you're looking at various issues in terms of strategy and structure. It's really about good governance, and that's not going to change for any nonprofit, whether it's a trade association or a charity. Some of the areas specific to associations, though, and frankly, the, the greater world is we're talking about HR issues. Employment law has become a bigger issue, especially as people are working remotely. You now may have employees in areas you never thought you'd have before. Yep. And so this is something you're going to have to think about in terms of compliance. It's the good news, bad news joke of working remotely. And I think a, another area that people forget to think about, trade associations have to think about antitrust law. And yeah. the reason why that one surprises people is we're a trade association. Why would we're, we're not competing for things, but your right. members are. And anytime you bring competitors into a room together, you run the risk of dealing with antitrust issues. And so some of these areas are, are traps for the unwary. And I think part of the difficulty and what I love a lot about your association is that you guys are training the executives. So the association executives have lots of skills and they're asked to put on so many different hats. You're the IT professional, you're the membership chair, you're the program person, you're the event coordinator, you're the HR specialist. You have all of these hats that you're trying to wear as an association executive. And I think it's difficult to know there are legal issues and accounting issues and other tax issues that you have to be aware of as well. And I think it's a huge challenge. So kudos to your organization for bringing all those issues up and educating the association executives. Thanks. Yeah, it's interesting because we'll have a session, a speaker like yourself will come in and say like a sweeping statement about antitrust and maybe like you should have the board like review the policy every year and you can see so many people like looking around, oh, I don't do that. Should I be doing that? And then they look at their friends, like, you do that? And they're like, yeah, oh God. I... So it's funny when we do these kind of governance sessions, because you can see people's like smoke coming off their notepad. Oh God, we got it. When I get back, I have like all these things to do. And it's not like we want to scare them. It's We're not trying to scare them. And our speakers never try to invoke fear, but at the same time, also try to remind them of these like very small minuscule things that could have very big consequences. It's always interesting when I hear a case about antitrust and how much detriment that does with those involved in, in the legal case. And it's just heartbreaking when it could have been avoided very easily with some education. So I think antitrust is a big one that everyone looks over really quickly. A lot of associations have like that verbiage, the beginning of their annual program saying, don't do it. And then that's it. One time, a long time ago, I had an attorney give me advice that if I was ever in a room where the antitrust was being discussed and I needed to vacate to make sure that, what did he say? To make sure that my present, my my exit was very noticeable. Like he said, knock over a glass of water or do something. So people remember, oh, Stephen left. I remember because he knocked his water over. And I was like, I don't want to go around like knocking water over every time I think, but I understand like making up the impression that like I'm removing myself from the situation. That's yeah, true. the opposite of the way you leave a cocktail party. You stay right. out <laughs> yeah. and it's your exit. Yeah, That's the, this is such a great topic, though. This, honestly, I would have never thought of. So it's an excellent point. 
And it's so dangerous because it just it, it's just can happen so easily. It's really hard to manage. And so, and I've been in a room where I'm just like, well, that's real close. Like maybe, maybe we'll go back that way. Because <laughs> you just get one person who gets upset about it or, or identifies it. And then you're in for quite a battle. But on the flip side, I think that's one of the advantages trade associations have over, for example, the charitable space. Yeah. So the members of the board, the members that participate extensively in trade associations, they know why they're there. They know from a business perspective, the value of associations. They know what good can be accomplished together. And there's a business acumen that they bring to the table that I think volunteer leadership in some other areas may not be as consistent. But I find that trade associations tend to be more sophisticated. Even the, the association executives that I work with tend to be sophisticated in the sense that they understand what lawyers do, how to work with lawyers, how to work with professionals, when to ask the right questions. And I find that's because many of them come from an industry. And when they came from the industry, they worked with lawyers. They knew what lawyers did. They knew the value of getting good advice. They knew about working in a professional setting. And I find that across the board with associations that they tend to have more sophisticated questions. They tend to work more effectively with outside counsel and really try to, to leverage that value. That's awesome. Let's take a quick break from the conversation to hear about TSAE's upcoming event, our CEO Forum. To all of our CEO and executive director listeners, mark your calendars. Coming up March 4th through 5th is TSAE's CEO Forum, sponsored by Visit Fort Worth. That's right. CEO Forum is an educational event created by CEOs for CEOs, and our advisory committee has come up with an incredible lineup of topics and speakers for 2024. Sessions like Future Thinking for Boards, Ask the Association Attorney, Navigating the Boardroom, and of course, the HR Hot Seat. So sign up today by visiting tsae.org. March 4th through 5th at the brand new and very beautiful Crescent Hotel in Fort Worth. Register now and join us in March 2024. You don't want to miss the chance to connect and learn from our association CEO community. So let's say I want to be very sophisticated uh, in coming to you. What are some questions that associations should ask whenever they're seeking an attorney? Yeah, the first question is what type of attorney are you seeking? It's like when you go to the doctor and you say, my arm hurts. You don't necessarily go to a podiatrist for that, right? You find the right specialist for the right kind of issues. And it could be that you don't know who that person is and you don't really know what that specialist looks like or what the specialty is that you really need. And that's fine. I address calls with people all the time saying, I'm not sure if you're the right person, but this is the kind of help I'm looking for. And part of what lawyers are really good at is just issue spotting and helping to understand what are the special areas that are needed? And for example, in, in my line, I focus on nonprofit organizations all day, every day. And those issues go well beyond the scope of just your tax exempt status. They have to do with HR issues. They have to do with intellectual property. They have to do sometimes litigation. And so I'm able to say, okay, we need to bring in this specialist. We need to bring in this person because I know just enough. And then I have an expert alongside who can help me. And so having a relationship with a lawyer, whether it's someone on your board, whether it's somebody in the community that is part of the association, or whether it's just a nonprofit lawyer that you have a contact with, 
to reach out and really understand what the issue is you're trying to address and what kinds of questions need to be answered. And in many cases, it could be a simple, simple answer, but in other areas, it could be complex and it could be multi-layered and multifaceted. And so it's hard to know on the front end and it's always good to just start a conversation. That's a good point because I get a lot of calls like, I need a lawyer. Do you know one? It's, are you getting it for your organization or, or are you in trouble? What how? Not going to help. So give me a little bit more, more detail. Yeah, absolutely. And those who just don't have experience working with lawyers don't always know the right questions to ask, don't always know where to start. And that's totally fine. The benefit of reaching out to a lawyer is that they typically know and can figure out where the area is in question and always happy to refer to others who can help. Yeah. I can't imagine what kind of questions you must get all the time. I would just like to be a fly in your email to see what things people are asking you. But that leads to my, probably the most fun question I've got to ask the entirety of the, our podcast is, can you tell us a little bit about your most interesting case in the past year? Sure. I was working with an organization that had some questions about executive compensation. I started working with them about executive compensation and just how to figure out compensation, how to make sure that you're only paying what's reasonable. That's part of your tax exempt status is that you're paying reasonable compensation. And so we started down that direction and then it expanded into other areas that the executive had a, a for-profit organization that worked with the nonprofit. And then it expanded further and there were issues about the trademark of the organization that the executive actually owned the trademark individually. And then it got even more complicated that there were some other issues that arose and fast forward a little bit more and the issues kept expanding up to the point that they ended up terminating several of the executives. One of the executives filed a lawsuit claiming that he owned the trademarks for the entire organization. There were other lawsuits that were filed. There was lots of issues. And then there was a forensic audit that was conducted to try and figure out what was actually going on in all this. And so this started with a single phone call about compensation for an executive. And there were issues all over the place in terms of questions about how to determine executive compensation. What is good governance? What are the relationships between the executives, conflicts of interest? Uh, just very high level questions that organizations should be thinking about on a day-to-day -day basis. But this organization was just getting into those things because there were a few board members who were asking really good questions. And we're getting good answers. And so it, it to other questions. That sounds like a good example of good governance. Start at least that started the process of digging into it. And then just utter fear. <laughs> then that just sounds terrible. Because it's, it's like, uh, like you know, you're it back like, oh, it leads to another question, leads to another question, leads to another question. But that sounds riveting. And I, again, wish I had been a fly on your email because I would have just eating my popcorn and watching this all play out because my goodness, what a case. It was difficult because I do feel that what my role is really to help organizations overcome difficulties. So they find themselves in a problem. My goal is to take away the problems so you can get back to doing the great work that your organization does. Right. And so this was hard to watch because this was a very difficult problem that the organization really just wanted to do good work and had lots of issues that it was dealing with that was preventing it from being able to satisfy its mission. Yeah. You brought up a good point earlier, Jonathan, about how we wear many hats, meaning that a good chunk of our membership are small orgs. They have maybe one to five staff and they don't have an IT department. They don't have an HR department. 
the CEO, executive director is doing all of that. And so I can see how very easily you can miss something like a law that you don't know about or some sort of thing, because you're just, just like we are here, it's like a small team of five, we're just running from one thing to the next. So we don't have a lot of like downtime to really look and analyze things. So I can see how it easily miss, but man, that's definitely be, we need a whole podcast episode about that whole, <laughs> that whole thing. Like just diving into that. Good Lord. That is also like people's deepest fear, I feel, is I'm going to find something out that I'll have to do all this with an attorney. And so sometimes I wonder if people are like, I'm just going to stick my head in the sand like an ostrich. And if I don't see it, I don't know about it. And then we'll figure, we'll mess with it later. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes people are afraid to look under that rock. Yeah. Uh, And a lot of it comes out when someone new joins the board or a new executive and somebody's asking questions. And a lot of it has to do with good risk management from the organization. And so part of that is asking thoughtful questions and putting in the right controls in place to make sure your organization avoids conflicts of interest, has the right controls. Those are some of the the basic risk management and risk prevention kind of issues that you can do on the front end that can help avoid some of those negative consequences. And it's funny because sometimes I hear from people who were who talk about, oh, you got that board member asking all the questions. Like I do just wish they'd stop asking so many questions. But at the same time, like they, they have a role too. They have a duty to the org to ask intelligent questions. Now, I'm not for someone asking like weird and unusual questions, but like someone who's just getting like the basics of what they need to make sound decisions. That makes total sense. So there's this very delicate balance of uh, everyone uses the phrase, I don't want to be that board member, I guess, because everyone has experience with someone who maybe wouldn't stop grilling the staff. But at the same time, they have a, a, a duty of care for the organization to to ask the right questions. So I think there's a happy medium people can find, especially on the staff side and on the board side. Like you said, I think it comes with good governance and board orientation and what a really good board member, what kind of questions they should be asking instead of what's the theme for the annual convention and why did we pick Alice in Wonderland? Instead, let's talk more about like strategy and big things. And sometimes that's hard for people to come into a sort of a cloud view uh, in the clouds instead of into the weeds. I'm just really glad you dropped a duty of care into a normal conversation like that. 10 points for Steven, right? <laughs> Knocking it out. Duty of care, it's duty of fiduciary duties are critical. And I just love how you just threw that in there as if it was right off the top of your head. I think that's great. <laughs> yeah, I, I read a lot, Jonathan. I read a lot. Looking to the future, Jonathan, looking forward, what is one thing you think associations should be keeping an eye on in your legal opinion? Yeah, so we're at the beginning of 2024, and as most everybody has already discovered, this is an election year, and many trade associations are going to be involved in some lobbying activity and some political activity, and for 501c3 organizations, the charitable organizations that operate as trade associations, political activity, which is endorsing or opposing candidates, is strictly prohibited, and there's some significant restrictions on lobbying ability as well. And so the 501c6 trade associations, they can do political activity and lobbying activity, but there are also some other requirements that people need to be thoughtful about, including disclosures and registrations for lobbying. And to the extent that they have a political action committee, those kinds of things, there are regulatory requirements for those. And it's something that as we're getting into the political year, now is a good time to get your house in order if that's something your organization is going to be active in. That's a big one too. I I know a lot of groups that have PACs. I know a lot of groups that do endorsements. So I I guess it makes sense that it's, we don't, STSE, but crossing all the T's and dotting all the I's sounds very important. 
what do you think, Jonathan, for those who aren't involved in the political landscape, what, what is something they should be looking out for? Yeah, like I said, your earlier podcast on innovation, I think as trade associations are becoming more thoughtful and creative about the different things they're working on, just understanding what potential implications there are from a tax exempt perspective is something to be thinking about. Many organizations are looking at other forms of sustainable revenue, and it may be that there could be opportunities to create structures that are tax efficient, other ways that you may want to work with other organizations, either other trade associations, like you said. I think a lot of that creativity needs some structuring on the front end to make sure that you're not inadvertently creating some issues. But love how thoughtful the space is and how it's not just about the annual conference. There are so many other opportunities out there. Yeah. And I, I think since the pandemic, people are trying to be more creative again to continue to f provide value for the members. Like we don't want to just be the one meeting a year. We want you to be with us the entirety of the year. So it's a good point. If here too, we're getting super creative with a lot of things we're doing like this podcast. So it's, it's always good to make sure legalese wise, everything's on the up and up before jumping into the deep end with good and crazy ideas, which a lot of us have. <laughs> that non-news revenue, Jonathan, we got to figure out how to get it. <laughs> That brings up a good point. Speaking of the non-dues revenue, is working with associations harder than working with for-profits? It's interesting. I don't work with many for-profits in my current role other than those that want to work with nonprofits. And I think the for-profits don't really understand how to work with nonprofits. They have to learn that aspect as well. If I had to compare charities and trade associations in terms of the different clients I have, like I said, trade associations are generally more business oriented, really understand that sometimes you need to pay for services that are necessary. They understand how to use lawyers. They understand the way of accomplishing some of these more traditional for-profit business tasks. Whereas I think charities are a little bit more about the charitable mission focus and the legal side is almost secondary. And so what I enjoy about trade associations is they're thoughtful, they're creative, they like coming up with creative solutions to things, they're results-oriented. So many of the different organizations I've worked with really understand some of the pros and cons of some of the things they're doing and are willing to take certain business risks and willing to undertake a new relationship or a new project because they understand how it's going to impact their members. And I, I think that's been fun and interesting and creative in terms of my practice. So I've enjoyed the association world. I like that so much. That's exactly how I see our members. Just yeah. such a description. Yeah, it really is. The one thing that's always fascinating to me is that at least in this space, I feel I do something different every day. I can't come in and say, this is what I will do today. Although I try to have a checklist of things I want to do today, and then it gets blown up for some reason. But at the same time, one of the reasons I love this space is that we come into something new every day. We're not doing the same thing. It's not, there's not a lot of monotony in what we do, but at the same time too, I imagine, interestingly enough, on your side of things, the legal side, the things you must get kicked out from other associations must be, I know people have contract questions. That's a big one, I'm sure. But I could imagine the creative and unique problems they probably come to you with. That would just be fascinating, in my opinion. So look, we'll have that all play out. And then in my head, Jonathan, I have you like permission to treat the witnesses hostile, but it sounds like you do a lot of like gentle back and forth trying to fix the problem good for everybody, which 
makes you sound like a great guy. And uh, although I think you're awesome, in my head, I was like, oh, I bet he's like a tiger. Like, burn it all down and then build it back up. But it sounds like you're actually- He's a tiger on paper. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, tiger on paper. He has a really good approach, actually, which is why he's doing it and I am not. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I, I'm certainly never bored. And the, the issues that come up so significantly, every organization has issues that are a little bit different, a little bit unique. In many cases, we see similar things come up, but every situation is unique. I'll just give you one example. I had one association reach out to me today because they own a building and their tenant is creating issues. And so it's a landlord tenant issue, not what you traditionally think of as an association issue, yeah. um, but it's something we can, we can help resolve those kinds of questions. And there are situations where you have to be tough. And certainly it's, I think lawyers tend to have thicker skin than most. And so certainly don't mind occasional issues that come up. But again, just circling back to the origin story, I didn't want to be a litigator. Yeah. Uh, a Few Good Men was great to watch, but certainly not something <laughs> that I, I mean, want to I, think, I feel like the next David Wolf iteration should be like Law and Order Associations. But then it would just like, it sounds like it would just be a bunch of people writing emails back and forth and doing paperwork, not as much drama as they, they do in the other shows. It's so funny. I, I can't watch lawyer shows. It's so hard for me to be, I, I said, it's so much more boring on a day-to-day -day basis than that, <laughs> right? It's just it's nowhere near that entertaining. But <laughs> I asked my kids, what do you think I do all day? And they're like, you talk on the phone. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. that's what I do. Well, we have our last question for you, Jonathan. And uh, again, it's the same question we ask everybody that's our guest here. So we want to know, why do you think being engaged with organizations like TSAE is so important? Absolutely. I think the importance is the collaboration among the association executives. Throughout my career, I've been a part of organizations where peer-to-peer -peer learning and peer-to-peer -peer education has been so critical. When I was in-house at Susan G. Komen, we had a group of nonprofit in-house lawyers that got together. I've always been a part of those kinds of associations because I think it really adds value to the entire sector, the entire space. It brings everybody up. As I watch TSAE and the kinds of programs you put on and the kinds of activities you do, just like this podcast, it's just an opportunity for all of us to learn from each other. And I find that of immense value. Us talking today about all the many hats that association professionals wear is a testament to that's why you need something like an organization like TSAE that does help with those education and the connecting people that are dealing with the same same issue. You just don't know what you don't know. That's the problem. Those of us who got into the space, we haven't had any legal training. There's no, oh, you're an executive director now. Now you go to this legal class. Welcome. And accounting, and HR. It's just you find all this stuff out as it approaches on your desk and you're like, crap, this is something now I have to be an expert at and deal with. So I'm going to make a call to Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure chatting with you today. I appreciate the opportunity. You guys are yeah. great. Of course, I already feel more legal ready, so I am ready for my guest spot on Law and Order Associations. I will make it dramatic and I will make it seem sexy, Jonathan, I promise. Absolutely. Even while I'm sure that would be very successful, I think maybe leave the legal stuff to the experts and we'll stick to association management. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Sounds like a great plan. <laughs> So join us each month as we have more conversations with members from the association community and be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And if you'd like more information about the Texas Society of Association Executives, 
be sure to visit us online at tsae.org. On behalf of TSAE, I'm Stephen Stout. And I'm Katie Marker. See you next time. Bye.